0: Horses are at the gates. And they're off! Welcome to Winning Ponies. With a weekend coming up, this is the spot to be for news, handicapping, and spotlights featuring the winners behind horse racing today. Now, here's your host, John Engelhart, racing's regular guy. And thanks for joining
1: us again for this edition of Winning Ponies. Should be an exciting show uh, with me. Uh, my first guest has been on the show before, and probably because of his appearance here, became an award winner. We reviewed his book, Noor, Milton Toby." Well, uh, since then, he's come out there, and he's written "Canonero the II, The Rags to Riches Story of the Kentucky Derby's Most Improbable Winner. Obviously, a lot of people might think California Chrome was one of the most improbable winners with his pedigree and humble background, but Cannon Arrow II, a very, very good read, and and Milton is just a class act. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing what he has to say about his book. Um, It was Derby Week, so that'll fit in great. And also fitting in great will be one Tom Lamara. Tom's been a regular Here on Winning Ponies, of course, he is the news editor of the Blood Horse magazine. And Tom's a a guy that he's a blue-collar handicapper, loves to come to the races, have a cold one now and then. And today I had the chance to uh, spend a little bit of time with Tom at America's newest racetrack, and that would be Belterra Park in Cincinnati, Ohio. Of course, formerly it was uh, River Downs. Uh, The track started back in 1925, and uh, it was Coney Island in the beginning. Uh, Then there was a little bit of a break, and when it came back with new ownership, it became River Downs uh, up until about three years ago when Pinnacle Entertainment bought the track. And uh, the name has been changed to Belterra Park. Of course, uh, Belterra Resort is uh, within an hour here in Indiana, a very well-known and well-respected casino. Belterra uh, Park is a race, you know, no table games, uh, just video lottery terminals. But they've got a new racetrack, and it looks fantastic. i um, will be interesting in getting uh, Tom's read on it. As you know, Tom's not a guy that pulls a lot of punches. So uh, if there were warts on the track today, he'll be uh, telling us about that. But uh, if he liked what he saw, he'll, he'll be reflecting on that, too. And then I had a chance to spend almost an hour today with a gentleman, a well-known to racing a Hall of Famer by the name of Steve Cawthon. of course, Steve started his career at the Cincinnati Oval when it was named River Downs back in 1976 on a horse by the name of Red Pipe, got a leg up from his uncle Tommy Bischoff, and came home a winner. Of course, the rest is history. Uh, the youngest Triple Crown winner in the game, and the last Triple Crown winner. I had to ask him, I said, well, what do you think about uh, California's Chrome's chances? He says, I'll tell you what, after what I saw on Derby Day, he says, at the distance of the Preakness, I don't have any doubt that he's probably the best three-year-old out there. Um, As long as he holds himself together uh, within the next two weeks, uh, he just looks like the top three-year-old Colt. He said, you know, but a lot of things happen. You know, you just don't know about the Belmont. He said, I'll be honest with you. He says, I wasn't sure Affirmed was a mile and a half horse. Of course, I've shared the story with you in the past uh, that Steve told me that in the Belmont, that was the first time he had ever switched sticks and hit Affirmed left-handed. And he got a little bit extra out of him that day. And of course, with Ali Dar at his throat latch, he needed it. A fantastic ride, a fantastic part of racing lore. And of course, uh, just a fantastic person. Uh, Steve Cawthon again started his career at this oval. He was here today. It was, it was great to see him the, the fans loved him. Uh, he got to speak to the public, uh, before the race opened. But again, it was kind of interesting, uh, his, uh, Feelings about California Chrome as far as the Belmont. He's like, you know, even though he's the best three-year-old this week or these three weeks, uh, the Belmont is tough. He says there's horses laying in wait for you. Uh, He said, quite frankly, you do have to give his uh, pedigree some consideration, though certainly a mile and a quarter didn't look like it was any problem for California Chrome and his connections. Um, But coming from a Hall of Famer like Steve Cawthon, it'll be very interesting. But the one thing he says is, boy, he says, if California Chrome wins the Preakness, my phone blows up for two weeks. (laughs) Anybody that's got his cell phone that's in the media wants to talk to Steve and find out, well, is anybody finally going to become the next uh, triple Crown uh, jockey? Of course, it would be Victor Espinoza. And, uh, you know, what are your feelings on the race? So, But he's always obliging to the media. It was great to, to spend time with such a class act as uh, Steve Cawthon this afternoon. And all I can tell you is the, the people at Belterra Park really uh, put their best foot forward. Now, the best foot forward this weekend, was it California Chrome? or was it untappable uh the guests that we had on last week uh Gary West uh, Dan Ilman and Dan Cronin uh if you were uh, tuned in uh, pretty much uh, helped us hit the trifecta in in the oaks and uh yes I did and the $2 try came back and paid $178.20. Of course, on top, winning by four and a half with Rosie Naprovnik in the saddle was untappable, unquestionably the best three-year-old filly in the land. She did decide not to go to the Preakness um, uh, Steve Aspieson just thought to ask her for another top effort within uh, the two weeks uh, was not in her best interest to run back. So he's going to find some races, perhaps the acorn in, in New York for her. But uh, how hot is the sire tap at right now? And uh, untappable again was uh, just well within the authority to land over uh, my miss Sophia. a horse I kind of liked. And then uh, Dan Illman and Dan Cronin gave, uh, Little push on Unbridled Forever at 13 to 1. So again, thank you guys. Uh, 178.20 seventy eight twenty. Eight well in Louisville on Friday night. And then, of course, uh, you know, the Derby itself, it was California Chrome, beautiful ride by Victor Espinoza, um, turning into the stretch, was on top by five, he spent most of the time looking over his shoulder, uh, coming from 18th, 17th, and 11th, uh, after a mile, was commanding curve, a Dallas Stewart trainee with Sean Bridgmahan in the saddle, who has said that he is going to pass the Preakness, and he feels that the way that... Uh, his Colt ran in this race that uh, he'd probably be very well suited to the mile and a half at Belmont, and that's the way they're going to train commanding curve to that race. And in third, it was Danza, and I believe that uh, Danza is one of the few derby horses uh, that's going to run back in the Preakness. Uh, the other one, uh, Ride right on Curl and is a certainty to be in there. Danza still a little bit on the fence, but, of course, you're going to have some outsiders uh, that are going to be taking a shot at them. Uh, one of them uh, will be none other than the Philly, Ria Antonio, who came up a little bit short in the Kentucky Oaks. Uh, Ria Antonio, uh, Ron Pailucci, who's been on Winning Ponies with us, uh, he just feels that... Uh, uh, that Untappable is the best three-year-old in the country, boy or girl, he said in his opinion, and the California Chrome is a great horse, but I believe if Untappable was in the Derby, she would have won, and uh, there's going to be some speed in there with Bayern and social inclusion, so uh, it could set up uh, for her, and now um, Rhea Antonio would run without blinkers, and is also going to have a new rider. Mike Smith won't be aboard. So it'll be very introducing, inter, interesting to see what the Philly does. We know that Ron's been very high on her, and also she's going to be having her uh, her third trainer. It looks like Tom Amos is now taking over. Uh, started with Jeremiah Englehart, uh moved to Bob Baffert. He just didn't think it was right to have the horse all the way on the west coast, so uh, he moved the horse to the... Uh, Amos Barnes. So that'll be uh, very interesting to see what happens. Of course, uh, the one Preakness challenger that uh, is raising a lot of eyes is social inclusion. Uh, This was the the horse that uh, just popped everybody's eyes out early on and is trained by Manny Aspura, who uh, makes Art Sherman look like a young boy. Uh, (laughs) Manny Aspura in his 80s of course, uh, uh, Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons was 82 when he won with Bold Ruler in 1957. So uh, uh, what can I say? G- good luck to the, to the connections there. Social inclusion, of course, finished third in the Wood Memorial after two eye-popping works, uh, works efforts and wins in Florida. Uh, so he is already at the uh, his shed row for the Preakness and is going to train there. They said he uh, finished up with good energy this morning. Also, they say the California Chrome put in a nice gallop this morning. Although it was, uh, as we say, kind of a a slower effort. He only got a 97 buyer California Chrome But it doesn't matter. When you win as easy as he was, he was on top five, turning for home, and he just kind of cruised after that. So uh, we'll take a little bit of a turn here uh, in some breeding news. Uh, Zenyatta will not be bred in 2014. Uh, She uh, just had a Warfront foal, and uh, the 2010 horse is going to be given a little bit of a break uh, in her cycle. Uh, You know, from the start... The Mosses have said it's always about her happiness and well-being and her condition. And this will also give her a chance to kind of rewind and start having foals, you know, a little bit earlier in in the year. So uh, she, you know, not only did she have Horse of the Year on her, she earned Eclipse Awards as Champion Older Mare from 2008 and 2010. So a little bit of a physical break will be good for her. And, uh, you know, she's got uh, two horses in training, Cosmic One and Iconic, so it'll be interesting to see you know what they do at the races. Well, uh, when we do get to Tom Lamara's uh, section, we're going to be looking at uh, the the Man of War, the Peter Pan. We may get to the Las Barrera if we have time, uh, but uh, the Man of War uh, will be one of the uh, races that's going to be on the Fox Network. Uh, they've got um, quite a good schedule, uh, starting with the, the Man of War Stakes. Uh, then also they're going to have uh, the United Nations from Monmouth, the Eddie Reed from Del Mar. Then we get up to Saratoga where they'll have the Coaching Club Oaks, the Saratoga Special. Uh, and then uh, rounding out the Saratoga meet, the Sword Dancer, and then up to Canada for the last one, the Woodbine Mile. So it's good to see that, uh, that the Fox Sports and racing itself will be getting more live coverage. Well, coming up, here in just a little bit, again, we're going to be talking with uh, Milt Toby. Uh, he's an author, a photographer, uh, an, an attorney, uh, you name it. This guy's done just about everything in the game. Uh, and uh, I, I knew him back in the days when uh, he worked for the Blood Horse uh, and, and always admired his photography. But now I'm admiring his writers. And we're going to talk about the rags to riches story of Kentucky Derby's most improbable winner, Cannon Arrow The Second, coming up with Milton Toby. So thank you very much. Hope you had a lot of winners over Derby weekend. We'll be right back. You're listening to Winning Ponies. The opening kickoff is a beauty. It's a five ball deep right field. Back goes O'Neal. He's up. he'd glossed over his his resume a, a little bit uh, prior to the break Uh, Again, he's uh, written professionally for some 35 years. Uh, He worked on the editorial staff of the Blood Horse. Uh, I first recognized his name as an equine photographer, Uh, but then he went over and uh, did a six-year stint as a freelance photojournalist living in China, Costa Rica, Colombia. Uh, He eventually went on to to become a lawyer. Uh, What what a life this guy's led, but um, his his skills at writing and research are just phenomenal, and... uh, it's not often I sit down and read a book from cover to cover. I had that opportunity a couple weeks ago and Cannon the II, the rags to riches story of the Kentucky Derby's most improbable winner was just a great read and uh, as you know, we've had Steve Haskin on the phone th- uh, with Winning Ponies before and uh, he wrote the foreword to this and let me just read the last paragraph what Steve had to say. He said, you are about to embark on this remarkable journey thanks to Milt Toby and the passion and brilliant storytelling that from every page. By the end, you will be shouting "Viva Canonero!" <laughs> and a new generation of Canonero fans and admirers will be born. Sometimes it takes the talented people like Milt Toby and Solomon Gill to help move history up into the present and expose people to the stories long forgotten. With me right now, Milt Toby. Milt, how are you? I think you got another award winner here.
2: Well, I, I hope you're right about that, John, and thanks for having me on the show. I always enjoy chatting with you.
1: Well, the last time we, we had you on, uh, you, you had just written the book
2: Noor, and that was a, uh, just a marvelous
1: read in its own right. Um, and I know that at the beginning of the book, you give credit to so many people because you want to be so historically correct. But with Canonero Arrow second, you really had your work cut out for you because stories came from different places, there were language barriers, there were different countries to travel to, but luckily you were able to kind of tap into some people that were doing a similar thing that you were doing while uh, creating a, a movie slash documentary. Uh, describe to us kind of uh, the, the, the birth of this book.
2: So I've always been interested in stories that people think they know but in fact don't, and, and Kenyonero is he fits that criteria perfectly, because everyone thinks that he, this was a, a great upset, but the more research I did, and I went into the book with the idea that this was a really an upset, it was a fluke. The more research I did, I came to realize that he was really a very, very good horse, which is why the subtitle of the book is Improbable Winner Rather Than Upset. He clearly was the best in the Derby, clearly was the best in the Preakness, and I Became involved very early on with Salomon Gill, who is a movie producer in California, and he coincidentally was working on a documentary, and as you say, a feature film about Canyonero, which we hope will be out probably in 2015. But he had done a lot of research. He is from Venezuela. He had done extensive interviews. He had a lot of memorabilia from the family, families of the jockey and the trainer in, in Venezuela, and he was happy to share all that. So it, I really got a running start.
1: Well, you you got a running start, and and, and your research was great, but obviously, it it, it had to be very difficult, because the one thing that that comes through in in this book um, that kind of of pulls on your heartstrings a little bit is uh, almost, I think, back in the day, because of the language barrier, um, that this horse and its connections got little respect.
2: That's absolutely true, and one of the the real eye-openers that, that showed me how much things have changed on the backstretch. When Canyon Arrow arrived the Saturday before the Derby at, at the gate at Churchill Downs, nobody expected him, and they had difficulty finding uh, someone on the backstretch who could speak Spanish, who could translate. And, <laughs> that wouldn't and be a problem really now. <laughs> but, but you're right, nobody could... Uh, Speaks English at all. The trainer had no English. The jockey had a little, but not very much. The owner wasn't here, but his son was. He didn't speak any English, and the the language barrier, the the unconventional training methods, everything worked against Canyon Arrow as far as making him they, even seen by the public. You know, they either ignored him or they laughed at him.
1: Well, yeah, well, I understand. You know that his training methods were somewhat unorthodox to the north american standards and that uh, exercise riders would actually come out with with without a saddle and just gallop the horse around
2: you know very much they had you know a bareback pad and he was kind of a hefty exercise rider and this was the way that uh, the trainer juan arias trained Canyonero in venezuela lots of long slow gallops you know very easy sort of you know, building up a you know some stamina in the horse and nobody here knew knew had to take that they just thought he was nuts
1: well, again, the horse was was just dissed until the Derby was over. But did people think that was a fluke? Because I, I know that when you look at the time of the Preakness, that this horse turned out to be the real deal. Yeah,
2: you know, the the Derby. You know, he was twenty lengths back during the early going and, and made a, an amazing rally on the outside coming into the stretch. But he only won. His time was two oh three and four fifths. He was almost four seconds off of Northern Dancers record at the time and everybody assumed okay he got lucky that there was some thought he'd been training in Caracas which is about 3,000 feet in altitude maybe coming down helped you know there were a lot of theories but nobody really gave him any credit you're right until the Preakness
1: well uh tell us then because I think you know obviously everybody remembers a derby winner but I don't think people remember that this horse was a track record setter in the Preakness
2: no, not at all. And what was really interesting, he, he clearly established himself as a come-from-behind horse in, in the Derby, coming from so far off that during the early parts of the the films of the race, he isn't even in the frame. He's so far back. And <laughs> coming up to the Preakness, you, know, you have two weeks between the Derby and the Preakness, and the owner, uh, Pedro Baptista Sr., was really concerned that nobody had given the horse any respect. So he changed tactics. He and the trainer and the jockey decided, okay, he came from behind in the derby, we'll go to the front in the Freakness, which you know now seems like a very smart move, but at the time it had to have been just an insane change of strategy. You know, why change what works two weeks down the road? But the, the first time by the stands at Pimlico, you know, uh, Canyon Arrow, and Eastern Fleet were side-by-side, and they were side-by-side on the lead for the rest of the race. Before he drew away and won. You know, he he won the Preakness in one fifty four. You know, he beat Nashua's track record, which is a pretty good horse to beat.
1: <laughs> You're not kidding. Well, by this time, and the book starts to cook um in Venezuela, he he became but the biggest sports hero in, in decades. Oh, absolutely. And things were really swelling, and obviously. um now sports writers are taking these, uh, this guy, this whole outfit, legitimately. Um, but it kind of almost, it seems like it was great that it was a national effort, uh, but did that somehow force their hand into going to the Belmont, or would you do that anyhow just because you won the Preakness? You bring up some interesting side points about what happened going into the Belmont and some of it may have reverted back to before he even came into the Derby when he first came into the country.
2: It was ironic because after the Preakness, as you say, the, the press was starting to pay attention to Canyonero and, and his trainer and the owner and the jockey. But about the same time, the horse began to develop some relatively serious physical problems. He had thrush that was that affected his training. He had a serious skin rash that made it difficult to tighten the girth. And he was reshod, and there apparently was a language barrier between the trainer and the blacksmith, who only spoke English. And there was some question about whether he had trimmed the horse too too closely, and he was sore for a couple of days and missed a lot of training. And there was a lot of pressure to to run the horse in the Belmont. It's, uh, Sports Illustrated, on the other hand, they, in an editorial, urged the owners not to run the horse because he he wasn't sound or wasn't fit. Let me say that. He, I think he was sound. But, as you say, there was pressure to win the Triple Crown, in Venezuela especially. You know, he had become a national hero there. And you know, it sort of you know, called up memories of Majestic Prince in 1969, who went into the Belmont, although Johnny Longden wanted to take him back to California. And there was a lot of pressure to run him, and he didn't win and never ran again. So you know, it's hard to know, you know what was in their minds. But after the race, Juan Arias, the trainer, told the press that he shouldn't have run him. And he felt very badly about having done so.
1: I know. And, you know, it was, and again, I, I implore people to go ahead and get the book to read, the different factions that had different decisions and the pressure that was put on people um, to do it uh obviously let's face it just about any horse that wins the first two legs in any modern time as it was ex- expected to go to the derby but you know again the, with those foot situations and the thing that happened with the blacksmith and then you kind of though it was a disappointment to the people in venezuela uh that the horse you know obviously still had the respect of the people uh from from there he goes back to venezuela right
2: no he didn't the plans were to send him back but robert clayberg bought him before he could be sent back so he didn't never did go back to venezuela until after several years at stud he he didn't race again as a three-year-old he was basically laid up and there was a period of time when he was on the in a stall on the backstretch of belmont park in the next stall to him was hoist the flag who was supposed to win everything as a three-year-old and had broken down in march so you know the the supposedly triple crown winner and the almost triple crown winner were side-by-side side in the fall.
1: But Canonero eventually did go back to Venezuela to stand stud down there, right?
2: He did, but after his four-year-old season, he raced in the King Ranch Colors in 1972 and generally didn't really repeat his form except for the stymie handicap, that they, they brought the Venezuelan jockey back to ride him. And in the stymie, it was the first time in years that two Kentucky Derby winners had raced together because Reaver Ridge was in there. And he beat Reaver Ridge by five lengths and equaled the world's record for a mile and eight. So he he was a good horse.
1: Well, it, as we get towards the the end of the book, there's a little bit of mystery uh, because they say that the, the cause of Kim Arrows second of the death was reported as a heart attack, But Juan Arias uh, had a different, more sinister theory. Can you just kind of allude to that briefly?
2: He did. The the horse stood at Gainesway Farm here in, in Lexington for a few years and was just a dismal failure at stud and wound up going back to Venezuela. And in 1981, he died. And as you say, the press referred to it as a heart attack, but Juan Arias always believed that the horse was poisoned. Uh, because he had been such a failure at stud and there was a six-figure mortality policy, insurance policy on him. So there's no way to ever know that, that, but that's not the way we ought to remember Canyon Arrow. Well,
1: no, and I I really hope this movie comes out uh, and we we get a chance to see it. But until then, I, again, want to urge our listeners to get a copy of this. It's a very easy and entertaining read, and it kind of shakes the cobwebs in your mind about Hoist the Flag and horses like that, of that era that were, you know, in the picture, but then were out of the picture because of uh, racing uh, mishaps. Um, Milton, if you would, uh, take your time on this. Tell our listeners how they can obtain a, a copy of your book.
2: It's available at Amazon, but if they would like an uh, signed copy, which I'm, I'm happy to, to provide, they can get it at my website, which is www.MiltonCToby.com.
1: That's, that's pretty simple, but for somebody that was just running and getting their pencil because they're saying, this sounds great, I want to get it, say it one more time.
2: Sure, not a problem. The, the website is www.MiltonCToby.com. And you can pay for it through PayPal. We've got that all set up, and I would be happy to to chat with people who are interested as well if they want to contact me.
1: Wow. All I can say again, I loved it. I love your style. I look forward to your, to your next project, and I, and I thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us on Winning Ponies.
2: Listen, thanks for having me, John. Like I say, it's always fun to chat with another racing enthusiast.
1: Absolutely, Milton Toby, again, a guy that 's uh, lived quite the life as a as a writer, a photojournalist, uh, an attorney, and now a successful author and uh, i 'm sure that uh, this well could be on its way uh, to another award winning book penned by Milton C. Toby. Well, coming up next we 're going to talk to a man that was out in the sun, having some fun in Cincinnati today, want to get his read on racing 's newest track. Belterra Park, I'm talking about the news editor at the Blood Horse, Tom LaMara. You're listening to Winning Ponies.
0: The fans now have a voice to speak their mind. No holds barred. the I just think that the coach
1: made a mistake. Crazy. NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL.
0: Speak up, speak up, or forever hold your mouth. We ain't playing around here. Voice America Sports. And they're off. What? can't make it to the track you can still get all the action with winningponies.com the home of the easy win form the most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds quarters and arabian horses at most american and canadian tracks whether it be the triple crown breeders cup travers Haskell, or your daily races don't worry let winningponies.com make some money for you All right, and back with
1: me, one of our most popular guests here on Winning Ponies, the news editor of Blood Horse Magazine and an all-around good old regular guy, Tom LaMara. Tom, are you sunburnt?
3: Yes, I am, actually, and uh, really, really happy about that, to be honest with you. Um, you know, yes, it's May, but it was like a mid-July day, so I like that. It's
1: good. All right, right. Uh, if you missed at the top of the show, the the, the picture I need to paint here is that it was uh, uh, opening day in North America's uh, newest thoroughbred racetrack, uh, Belterra Park in Cincinnati, Ohio, formerly known as River Downs, and there early in the day, I turn around and who do I see, but one Tom Lamara taking in the scene, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of uh, about the place and I am really looking forward to to your read on it because it's obviously way different from the old track that we used to enjoy so much.
3: Yeah, um well, yes it is. Mainly because of the, you know, the 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 grandstand was completely rebuilt and it has BLTs in there too, but uh surprisingly the the ambiance is still there when you're outside and that was one of the things that I was worried about because you know I've seen a lot of racinos I've been writing about it now for 20 years and you know the the racing tends to get short shrift um the racing amenities aren't as good and you know River Downs was always different because of you know it's strictly raced in the spring and summer late spring and summer And, um, you know, it's mainly an outdoor track where people like to come, they drink beer, they take their shirts off, and they hang out on the apron, whether it's, you know, 65 or 95. And (laughs) I've got to give them credit for what they did because it still retained that feel. Yes, it's smaller, but, you know, in light of the attendance at River Downs, not last year because, it was closed for construction, but the previous couple of years, I think that it's a workable facility, um, you know, and I'm really, really pleased with it. And, uh, you know, that comes from a person who loves, who who has loved to go up there since 1994, and um, I think it's pretty nice. I really do.
1: Yeah, and I have to agree with you. And you know, what's funny is, is so many people that build, uh, you know places that have VLTs, uh, slash slots, Um, they build them to keep you trapped inside. If you go into that facility, you've got so many different places to go. You've got the stadium sports bar. Uh, You can go out. There there are uh, terraces all along where you can leave the casino and watch the live racing. And then you have the River Downs Club itself, which is the, the, let's call it an OTB facility, which is really nice, leather chairs, flat screen. TVs, your own private places, uh, big flat screen TVs up top. Um, they, they, they leave it so you can spread out. Uh, and I won't even go into the food, but uh, it was kind of an interesting philosophy. That I think most people that are involved with casinos want to keep you trapped in there, and I think I think that mm-hmm. physical entertainment kind of built this thing with the idea of, yes, uh, we do have VLTs, but we've got other things to offer you here. Enjoy them. I mean, it's an entertainment center.
3: Right, and the the race book area is pretty big, and quite frankly, that should work fine for the, you know, the fall and the winter months when there isn't any live racing, that's, that's a good size. But at least they realize that when they're open for live racing, and quite frankly, they go through, what, October 19th now rather than Labor Day, um, you know, that at least they put some thought into making sure that the outdoor experience is good because at River Downs, that's always been the same when they're racing a lot.
1: And, and quite frankly, my read on the reason of this is when they came and they bought River Downs, it did not immediately come a Racino. They spent two years operating a racetrack. And so I think they got a healthy respect for the sport, and that changed a little bit of the philosophy of how they run the business at that place.
3: Yeah. And, you know, um, the first day was good. It was crowded for a Thursday afternoon. I think the 3 p.m. posts on Fridays will really, really do well. And the weekend should be crowded like they used to be when River Downs had no casino. Uh, You know, a few things I saw, you know, it was crowded. They may need a few more clerks. They may need some more self serve machines spread around the racing area. Um, The racing program could use some more how-to-bet information, some handicapping information maybe, but, you know, that's probably nitpicking. I think overall that it was a very successful opening day. The racing surface, I was told, was deep, but it was fair because I know horses won on the front end and closed. And, um, you know, it looked like they all got around there, which is huge.
1: Absolutely, and you're right. It was it was kind of a uh, a very level playing field, shall we say? Well, listen, yeah. while I've got uh, Tom Lamaro from the Blood Horse, let's rewind the clock a little bit back to last Friday. Uh, let's face it, untappable at this point in her career looks unbeatable. She was awesome in the Oaks.
3: She was, and um, hopefully they will continue to run her against phillies that is just my opinion (laughs) um you know i think she could have a really really great year if she sticks with her own sex i know you know a lot of people like to see um the females run against the males in the triple crown races but quite frankly it's probably a little bit too early to say that she's a rachel alexander type I, i i'm i'm just not convinced yet and, uh, of course, Rachel Alexander did win the Preakness after winning the Kentucky Oaks. But I think they're, you know, they're, uh, they're playing it the right way by skipping the Preakness. I mean, just run her in June or July, you know. I think it's okay. So.
1: Well, I- I, I totally agree with you, and obviously Steve Asmussen does. He, does. he doesn't feel the pressure. Well, as I stated earlier in the show, I had a chance to spend some quality time with Steve Cawthon today. Uh, he he yeah. was uh, extremely impressed with California Chrome's performance uh, in the Kentucky Derby. Let me get Tom Lamara's read on it. Well,
3: I was too, and yes, he had a very, very good trip, but, you know, there's a reason for that. Is that the horse has some early speed? He has good tactical speed, and the jockey got him in a very, very good position early. And you know, you can argue that the five post really is not a great post in that race because of the horses. Most of the horses are outside of you. Um, Not a whole, not a whole lot of horses went from the outside, which was kind of interesting. But you know, I just like the way the horse won. Uh, I know that the final time was very, very slow, 2 3 I think the last quarter was 26 and change, uh, which one person at River Downs told me this afternoon, excuse me, at Belterra Park this afternoon, told me was <laughs> um, standard bread time for a final quarter, which is true. I've seen some go 26 and change. But you know what, John? I just like the way he did it, and... With a smaller field and the fact that nobody appears to want to run against him that came out of the Derby, um, you know, I I think I'm looking at a three or a three to five or four to five shot in the Preakness, and justifiably so.
1: Yeah, and you'll get an argument from me. Again, you know, most people uh, need to be reminded that, uh, that the Preakness is actually you know, shorter than the Derby. Yes. Um, but as, as Steve Clothon said, and he was very impressed with it, and he really he thought, you know, if, as long as this horse stays together in the next two weeks, and I know that Mr. Sherman's not going to do much with him uh, except kind of keep him tight, he says he should, be, he should be a lock, you know, in the Preakness stakes. But even Steve said, he goes, you know what? The Belmont's a whole nother thing. He, In his own words was, I, I wasn't even sure that Affirmed was a mile-and-a-half horse. And in this day and age of lightly raced horses and people that point towards races, we know the commanding curve is going to take the time off. Um, these horses aren't going to be asked to run two weeks after the Derby and then come back and do a mile-and-a-half. So, uh, you know, hey, it's great for the game. I hope he blows them away in the Preakness Stakes, and there's going to be a lot of Triple Crown talk. But let's face it, Tom, how many times have we seen this over the last decade where horses were coming into the Belmont Stakes uh, looking for the Triple Crown and and couldn't get it? And quite frankly, California's chrome doesn't scream a mile and a half.
3: Well, that's true. And actually, um, when Smarty Jones won the Preakness after winning the Derby, and Smarty Jones won the Preakness you know, with total authority. And, um, you know, he was a Mid-Atlantic horse. He was bred in Pennsylvania. So I kind of had a, you know, a special rooting interest on that horse. And, um, you know what? I I, I still think he should have won the Triple Crown, even though he wasn't necessarily bred for a mile and a half. But, you know what? As you've seen many, many times, John, in, in a claiming race or a grade one, you know, things don't always set up... The way that they should in a race, and quite frankly, that's why Smarty Jones lost. And you know, um, I feel pretty good about California Chrome and the Preakness, but it's th- but I'm not making any pronouncements about the Belmont Stakes. But the nice thing about it is this: from racing standpoint, if a horse wins the first two, those three weeks between the Preakness and the Belmont are golden. They are golden for racing because there's anticipation. People get interested. Whether or not the horse wins, I don't really think that it really makes that much difference after the fact, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it's like an anticipation thing.
1: And, and this year, as you know, Tom, uh, Belmont has tweaked their stakes program and Belmont Day, again, we're putting the cart before the horse, assuming he's going to win the Preakness, is just going to be through the roof with all the graded stakes races they're going to run. I would expect attendance and handle records, should California Chrome go into that race as a triple crown potential.
3: Yes, it is a really, really, you know, it, it, it looks like a great card on paper. I hope that the horses who should be there are there. And strictly as an aside joke, when nira made that announcement scheduling all of those stakes on on that particular program with the belmont i told people at work i said this guarantees the horse will win the derby and the preakness because they probably won't need those races to get 100,000 people <laughs> so we'll see what happens next weekend right <laughs>
1: Well, we'll find out. Again, you know, I, as, as you stated earlier, uh, a lot of horses are deciding to just kind of maybe stay away from him for a while. We will see some new players uh, in the Preakness. Um, you know, maybe social inclusion is, is the, the, the freak that some people called him. But uh, And I know that Art Sherman says he wishes he had a little more time between races. But mm-hmm. the horse, they're not doing much with him. They're just doing a maintenance program. He, he looks to be the best three-year-old right now. Um, but the Belmont's a, a whole other animal. So we'll find out, but it's exciting for racing, as you stated. Uh, and I know obviously the Preakness is the biggest day in New York racing <laughs> because it is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if a horse that won the Derby wins the Preakness, all of a sudden you can't get a reservation anywhere near Belmont Park. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see if that in fact happens. Well, uh, What do you say we take a little bit of a break here, and we come back, and speaking of Belmont Park, there's some pretty good races there this weekend in in the Peter Pan and the Man of War. Again, we're talking with uh, Tom Lamara, the news editor of the Blood Horse magazine, a very experienced handicapper and a guy that just loves the sport of racing, as you can hear it coming through his voice. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a little bit of a break. You're listening to Winning Ponies. Is a beauty. It's a fly ball deep right field. Back goes O'Neal. He's out
3: the... it. Got it. But two point eight seconds and left to left. I don't care where they put him.
0: This one is out of here. From high school to the pros, we we cover everything. Cover everything. Let your voice be heard. Voice America Sports. And they're off. What?
1: people in racing because he's certainly not a snob he's a he's a guy that l- likes to go to the smaller tracks and enjoy them uh he's a he's a blue collar guy that doesn't mind dollar beer dollar dog day so but he's also a, a darn good handicapper and we're going to look at, at belmont park on saturday there's the peter pan stakes and i don't have my racing manual in front of me but if memory serves me well Woody Stevens used to use this race pretty good as a prep for the Belmont Stakes.
3: Yes, he did. You are right. And um, what's interesting about this race is, and I'm not crazy about the track configuration there, but it's a one turn, one and one eighth mile. Um, You know, my experience handicapping with one turn is usually one mile and no further, and I really like one turn miles, but a mile and an eighth gets kind of tricky, but somehow uh, Woody Stevens was able to pull it off because it's you know it's not the same as a mile and a half around two turns
1: but yeah and but but this this was the race that he keyed I want to say at least three of his Belmont stakes winners um, came came out of this race, and again, I don't have a racing manual in front of me, but for some reason, I usually don't remember what I had for breakfast, but I remember crazy stuff like that. I know Dan's connection was one of them. Um, but the, the Peter Pan, again, a mile and eighth, and as Tom pointed out, only Belmont Park can have a one-turn mile and eighth, but yet yet it's still it's going to test the stamina of these horses, and what we're seeing again is we're seeing a lot of horses that uh, either come in here with established credentials and are trying to redeem themselves, I think commissioner would fit that bill. Or, or we see young and upcoming horses, uh, in the likes of, of Tonalist. And, and once again, there's three tappets in here. I know I keep going back to that horse, but he's just had an amazing influence on the breed in the last couple of years. And of course, I believe this is the last crop of AP Indy, and he is the sire of commissioner, who is uh, currently the five to two second choice from the Pletcher barn. I, I know he was touted as you know one of the real exciting horses horses uh just didn't pan out in the sunland park derby or the arkansas derby uh they added blinkers to them looks like they're keeping those blinkers on um it's a short field there's only seven of them in there but i I see several that could jump up and maybe surprise in here
3: yeah um what's interesting about this race is the horses who who are the uh the morning line choices, by odds at least, uh, really don't have a whole lot of early speed. And they've all been going two turns. So I'll be curious to see how this one-turn, mile and eighth plays out. The horse that I kind of like here is uh, number two fabulous kid, mainly because, you know, he's been going 21, 45, 23, 46 at Oaklawn Park and uh, I don't know if anybody can run with him early, but what's interesting about the horse is he is by congrats, an AP Indy stallion, and uh, the mare is out of Lemon Drop Kit, so this horse should be able to run a mile and an eighth. He switched to, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Jimmy Turner barn and has a nice six for furlong work at Belmont. He's only four to one in the morning line, but this is the kind of race that I think if he's able to rate early and he's loose on the lead that he could wire the field.
1: That, that's a very interesting point. And as I as I look at the PPs, uh, the the only other one I, I see that has a similar scenario that could you know, kind of fit that bill that you're you're painting, is our caravan. Um, after, after a disappointing effort in the Fountain of Youth against the, the likes of Wildcat Red and General A-Rod, uh, they threw blinkers uh, on on this ridgling, and man, did he get a wake-up call in the Calder Derby. Wins by almost ten lengths, first-time blinkers. Uh, this horse could be a sleeper. He was nominated to the Triple Crown all along.
3: Yeah, he is actually my second choice. I'm glad that you mentioned the horse.
1: Oh, good. Um, I like to hear that, he Time beat, when I'm on board um, with you.
3: He defeated uh, Ring Weekend, of course, who won the Tampa Bay Derby, correct? I think he did. Yes, yes. yes By nine absolutely. and three-quarters length, uh, Ring Weekend was nine and three-quarters length behind our caravan. And uh, Ring Weekend was, you know, was expected to go in the Derby and uh, ran into a little problem and uh, is being strongly considered for the Preakness. So, yeah, John, I can absolutely see this horse uh, right there. All I right, agree.
1: and just, just real briefly, I know it was a short field, but I'm going to give you my long shot play of the week. It's Caro who's coming in from Calder, and again, I'm a big guy. I like to watch the equipment changes. Since they've taken blinkers off this tap at colt, he has just been tearing them up. He's one that's going to need that speed up front, but he's two for two. Coming from Calder He's a mystery horse, but I like 20-to-1. He's going to be in any exotics I make.
3: Yes, uh, he's actually also a horse I like, so <laughs> strictly for the reasons that you mentioned. and um, I don't know if it will be 20-to-1, but... Uh, You know, if the usual suspects in there, commissioner and totalist, are heavily bet, you know, he could be a good price, and you're right. Whenever whenever an equipment change makes that much of a difference, uh, you really need to look at the horse, you know, in subsequent races, and this is the subsequent race, so...
1: Well, let's, let's move on from the Peter Pan. My producer's telling me I've only got about two minutes. I hate to put your All feet right. to the fire. on probably the toughest race of the weekend, and that is the Grade 1 Man War. It's run at a mile and three-eighths, 400,000 up for grabs or on the turf. Uh, I've, I've got two minutes. Tom, I, I can make a case probably for 90% of this field.
3: Yes. Um, it's not a big field. It's a good field. They're all pretty evenly matched. I like Vertiformer for Clamont. Um, Joe Bravo comes back after riding him his last two times at a mile and a half, mile and an eighth. His mile and a half race at Gulfstream was really good. And um, I don't know. I just think he's uh, ready to win. He hasn't won in this country yet. So we'll see what happens.
1: Well, um, I guess... If you gave me five bucks and said go to the window, I'm probably going to go with imagining. And the reason is, Shug McGay seems to have this race down pretty good. Uh, he's yeah. won the last two runnings with, uh, boisterous and point of entry. And it's such a rare distance at a mile and three eighths. And imagining has already won. Uh, uh, at that distance, he won the Red Smith handicap, and this horse knows how to find the wire. He doesn't win by much, but he knows how to get his nose down, and he's a gutsy performer. A Fifteen lifetime starts, seven wins, four seconds. Um, I'm going to have to go with, with Suge in the Man of War.
3: He looks like a solid pick to me. You know, it, but it's a very, very contentious group.
1: Well, uh, yeah, you got Grandeur, you got got uh, Frack Daddy who had a huge race in the in, in the Ben Ali. You certainly uh, can't lo- leave out Luke Ann who tries the East Coast for the first time, but is coming off a top effort in the San Luis Rey. So it's going to be an interesting race. But what's most interesting is sharing conversation with uh, Tom Lamara from the Blood Horse. Tom, anything coming up new with you? You got any new blogs coming up? I got 30 seconds to tell my listeners how to get in touch with you.
3: Uh, New blogs? I'll probably write one on Belterra Park at some point soon.
1: Well, I'm going to look forward to that, yeah. quite
3: frankly. well, and some old River Downs-type memories that you'll probably recognize. <laughs>
1: I probably will, and I'll probably enjoy them. We've just been talking with Tom Lamar, the news editor of the Blood Horse. Be sure to, to go uh, to his blog. Sometimes he says things that make him go, hmm also want to thank Milton Toby, the author of Can Narrow the Second, a book I would highly recommend if you enjoy reading interesting stories about top thoroughbreds. And uh, I want to thank you once again. Don't forget, we've been giving out a slew of winners here on winningponies.com. Get up there, get your easy win forms. I want to thank everybody for listening. And remember, when you go to the races,
0: practice safe bets.